Amazon released a bunch of new devices at its fall event and wants to put drones and robots in your living room, so that's not creepy at all. Plus, it turns out everything I knew about wearables was very right and very wrong. And what the hell am I talking about? You'll find out. It's the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. Welcome to the Benefit of a Doubt podcast. I am your host, Adam Dowd, and this week we're taking a look at Amazon's huge fall event. Amazon released a ton of devices into the world, and most of them are by invitation only. But still, we've got drones and robots and video conferences with projectors. There's a lot to absorb here, so we're going to put on our best Orbi costumes and try to absorb. Plus, I ordered my new iPhone 13 Pro and it arrived late last week, and since then my eyes have been opened to a whole new world. Not by the iPhone, don't be silly, that phone's whatever, but by the Apple Watch SE that I also ordered, and my dear listener... I am happy to say that my career has been vindicated. The Apple Watch is an amazing piece of tech by virtue of the fact that it outclasses every other smartwatch I have ever worn, period, full stop. It's not the best at everything, but it's the best at a lot. And I've got a mini review for you, and that's all coming up. But first, we have to get to the news of the week. You might know Wendy's as the chain restaurant with the delicious fries and chocolate frosties. Always chocolate, unless you're a communist or something. Anyway, Wendy's also has a pretty snarky social media team that can always be counted on for a laugh or a sick burn, or both. And I know what you're thinking. Yes, it's even funnier than me. And I know that's hard to imagine, but one thing Wendy's has never had is a smartphone. Because, I mean, just why would Wendy's make a smartphone? That doesn't make sense. Oh, God, they made a smartphone, didn't they? Well, yes, they did. Eh, Sort of. The phone is actually a Samsung Galaxy A11 with either a red finish or more likely a red case and a custom skin. That custom skin includes a voice assistant launched by saying... Hey Wendy, which is objectively better than OKG. So the good news is you can try and win one of these phones if you actually want one. The bad news is, for some reason, you have to live in Canada, which seems random, but okay, we'll go with it. To enter, you have to download the Wendy's app, put in your favorite order, and take a screenshot of it. Again... Kind of random, but okay. Honestly, I'm not sure the A11 is worth going to the trouble of downloading and installing and setting up a new app, but if it's worth it to you, and you live in the Great White North, have at it. And in this week's episode of It's Not Autopilot, Elon, You Dickhead, Tesla is getting sued by Texas law enforcement for allowing abortions. No, I'm kidding. Tesla is getting sued for something that's only slightly less stupid. It seems a Tesla, while driving on autopilot, crashed into five Texas police officers while they were engaged in a traffic stop, which is objectively terrible. It seems Teslas have trouble identifying emergency vehicles and have crashed at least 12 times into stationary emergency vehicles. The suit alleged 
alleges that Tesla knows about the defects, citing tweets by Elon that reference owners misusing the autopilot system as evidence that Tesla knows about this problem and is not concerned about it. And all of that is exactly true. The lawsuit is seeking damages ranging between $1 million and $20 million, and good for them. I honestly hope they get 20 because Tesla and Musk have continuously shifted blame away from themselves and onto users, which is wrong when you install something called autopilot into a car. And now I'm going to stop this story before I get too angry. And speaking of companies lying for profit, Facebook, the crappy company run by terrible people, was called out a couple weeks ago by the Wall Street Journal who was contacted by a whistleblower commenting that Facebook conducted independent research into the effects of Instagram on kids, most notably young teenage girls. As it turns out, well, I'll let Senator Richard Blumenthal, the head of the Senate's Consumer Protection Subcommittee, tell you with his own words, quote, We now know that Facebook routinely puts profits ahead of kids' online safety. We know it chooses the growth of its products ahead of the well-being of our children. And we now know that it is indefensively delinquent in acting to protect them. And on the one hand, ouch, but on the other hand, yeah, sounds about right. It turns out teens blame Instagram for afflictions ranging from eating disorders all the way to suicidal thoughts, largely due to the influencer crowd and their fake-as-hell photos that they post showing their glamorous lives and rail-thin bodies. And despite knowing this, documents show that not only did Facebook not back off its push of getting Instagram into the hands of tweens and teens, but the company characterized children as young as 10 as a, quote, valuable and untapped resource pivotal to Facebook's growth. So if you were looking for an excuse to delete Facebook, this is probably a good one because that would be anti-pivotal to Facebook's growth. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go sit in a cold shower and weep. Meanwhile, Facebook is bringing Instagram Reels, also known as Instagram TikTok, over to become Facebook TikTok by releasing Reels onto the social network. And I gotta say, this is a good move, pivotal to Facebook's growth. Don't get me wrong, Instagram is big and all, but Facebook is freaking huge. And once you start getting Facebook users to start resharing reels, the sky is the limit. It's a savvy move, and honestly, what took so long? It's like a total TikTok clone, but Facebook has done a good job of getting users to adopt reels on Instagram. And I really don't have much else to say about this, except that it's a good move, and it's yet another feature that I can ignore on the platform. One Facebook feature that users in Australia won't be using are comments on CNN's pages on Facebook. The news outlet shut out everything from users in Australia following the stupid ruling we talked about a couple weeks ago when the Australian High Court said that news outlets who have Facebook pages are responsible for comments left on articles. CNN contacted Facebook asking for assistance in shutting down the comments on all posts from users in Australia and Facebook said, oh, nope. Instead, it offered to help CNN shut off comments on posts one by one and just screw that. So CNN just took its ball and went home and said, no articles for you, Australia. And honestly, what are they supposed to do? Australia court says that by posting articles on their Facebook page, they're encouraging people to comment, and therefore they are the publishers responsible for those comments. And CNN rightly decided that turning off comments on every article would be way too time-consuming and, you know, stupid. So it took its ball and went home, but not before leaving a parting shot saying, quote, We are disappointed that Facebook, once again, has failed to ensure its platform is a place for credible journalism and productive dialogue 
around current events among its users. Personally, I don't know what CNN is talking about here, because Facebook is a haven for credible journalism like articles that explain how ivermectin cures COVID and how lizardmen rigged the election and how Bill Gates is putting microchips into babies, so just what are you talking about, CNN? Talk about sour grapes. Google currently sucks up more than 90% of search traffic on the web, and because of this, it's currently facing antitrust suits in the EU. And to refute that suit, Google presented evidence that the word Google is by far the most popular search term on the search engine Bing. The conclusion drawn by this is that people use Google because they want to, not because they're forced to. That's been Google's argument all along. Google is the default search engine for both Android and iOS devices, which helps considerably. The main reason why Google dominates search is because Google poured money into its search indexing in the early days, and since then, Google became a verb. And in this case, Google is just objectively better than Bing. Bing literally pays people to use its search engine, and despite the fact that I'm a cheap ass, I still use Google all the time. Even though I'm using a Windows computer in Microsoft's browser, Google is still the search engine for me. It's just the best, plain and simple, and it comes by it honestly. Here's a new PSA for you. There's a new Android Trojan roaming around out there on over 100 apps called Grift Horse. This Trojan delivers its payload by creating a notification that you have won some kind of prize. And when you click on the notification, you are asked to put in your phone number to verify that you are who you say you are. Putting in your phone number, though, doesn't win you a prize. It signs you up for an SMS subscription service that is fake. Your carrier starts charging you a recurring monthly fee for about $36 per month. So that kind of sucks. The affected apps have already been purged from the App Store. Most of the apps fell into the category of call recorders, photo and video editing apps, caller ID apps, heart monitoring, stuff like that. You can get the full list by hitting the link in the show notes. And in general, you should probably be safe unless you've got a notification saying you won a prize and subsequently put in your phone number. I really, really hope you didn't do that. But if you did, you might want to check your phone bill. This week saw a new poster showing the release date of The Book of Boba Fett, the Mandalorian spin-off starring the eponymous character. I've never used the word eponymous before. I hope I did it right. Anyway, The Book of Boba Fett is coming on December 29th on Disney+. The show will be about where Boba Fett was between the original Star Wars trilogy that saw Boba Fett pulled into the Sarlacc pit and the part where he showed up in The Mandalorian, so that could be legit. Personally, I've always found Boba Fett to be highly overrated. He had like four lines in the movies that he was in, and he died stupidly in The Return of the Jedi. So how that dude built up such a cult following, I have no idea. But it did result in The Mandalorian and Baby Yoda, so I guess I can't complain too much. I'll be interested in watching the show when it comes out, but I'll be at Disney World at the time, so it's going to have to wait until 2022. Five Midwest states, including my home state of Illinois, are banding together to create a network of charging stations for electric vehicles. The plan is called Rev Midwest, short for Regional Electric Vehicle Midwest Coalition. The article doesn't really explain what this charging network will entail. Will it work for Teslas? Will it work for other EVs? What EVs will it work for? How is this different than Electrify America or something like that? There are just so many questions here that are not answered. And I would have to think that those states would have to use some kind of universal charging standard 
but I don't think there is one, and I'm not positive how this is going to work. Now, on the one hand, I'm encouraged that Illinois and the rest want to promote electric vehicles. That's exciting. But the idea of politicians being in charge of something technological... That's frightening. I've seen Illinois' governor at press conferences, and I'm not convinced he would know the difference between a Tesla charger and Electrify America charger, and for that matter, a phone charger. But whatever, I guess. This is my tax dollars at work, and if it means more places to charge your car, I guess I'm on board. But this is a story that I'm definitely going to have to keep my eye on. And finally, here's a story from Gizmodo with the headline, quote, iPhone 14 rumors hint at 2 terabyte option. <sighs> so let's break this down, shall we? iPhone 14. The iPhone 13 came out last week. iPhone 14 rumors, and you know how we feel about rumors on this podcast. iPhone 14 rumors hint. Hint. This isn't even a definite or a probably. This is a hint. 2 terabyte option. It's an option, and it'll probably cost like $1,600, and can I just go now? But people, this article right here explains why I don't report on rumors. We're one week out from the iPhone 13 launch, and already people are dousing their drawers over the next, next big thing. If I started reporting rumors and leaks, I would have to start a second podcast dedicated to just rumors and leaks. Sadly, it would probably perform better than this one, but that's a different conversation. The point is, rumors and leaks and speculation all have a pretty crappy track record when all put together. And even more so, we're going to find out all this stuff eventually, you know, when the company actually shows us the phone. So just pump your brakes right here. Even even if the rumor were 100% accurate, we're not going to see it for a year anyway. I just don't see the point in wasting airtime on the story except to get those juicy clicks. This is the singular reason why the story got published, and that kind of sucks. But this article is also the embodiment of why I don't report leaks. So that's why I wanted to share it with you. Amazon held its annual launch event this past week where it dumps a whole buttload of hardware on us all at once. If we're lucky, we get press releases under embargo ahead of time, or you're like me and you only report the news once on Sunday. Either way, we've had some time to digest this event, which, by the way, was only streamed to a select group of press. This was not a public event, and that was also kind of bogus. But coming out of this event, we got so much hardware, and this week it's getting its own segment. So what did Amazon have to show off? Starting off, Amazon showed off the Echo Show 15. This is a monster-sized 15-inch tablet that is actually designed to be hung on a wall. You hang it up, and the device acts like a hub for smart home stuff. Plus, it uses Alexa's new widgets to display relevant information like calendars or photos or smart home controls. What's more, the Echo Show is meant to be a sort of family hub where you can put up sticky notes and headlines and more. Interestingly, the Echo Show 15 also has the ability to recognize who is standing in front of it and contextualize the content on the screen according to that person. Stuff like reminders and greetings and calendars. It's potentially cool, but I would imagine that each user would have to set up that stuff individually, and I honestly can't see my family bothering to do that. Or myself, for that matter. It's a potentially interesting item if you're into the Alexa ecosystem, but if you're like me and you're not into that ecosystem... It's probably a pass. Next up was the Ring Always Home Cam, which is the drone that we talked about last year. This drone will hover out of its base and then fly around the house looking for intruders or 
something. This was originally introduced last year, but it's only just now becoming available, and it's a beta project, and you have to request an invitation to actually buy one. And if you do, you're essentially signing up to be a beta tester and paying for the privilege. More on that later. But yeah, basically this is a flying camera that can patrol your home. Supposedly this thing is loaded down with sensors to avoid obstacles and the like. We'll see how well that works and whether it flies into people or dishes or something. Drones are actually pretty hard to fly indoors because of random air currents that pop up and move all throughout the house. Presumably this drone will be able to compensate for those, but all the same, I'm interested to see how this performs and whether or not I'm going to wake up with an autonomous drone hanging over my head. Amazon Glow is an interesting project that is part video caller and part play projector. This device sits on a table and is a tall video screen for video calls. Then the projector puts an interactive game on the tabletop in front of your child so the person they're on a call with can play a game with them or just, you know, watch them play. The caller on either end does not necessarily have to have a Glow. Rather, they can use the Glow app to see what's going on on the screen and interact that way. And this is another device that's only available via invitation, so that's going to be a little annoying, but I wonder how useful this will ultimately turn out to be. I mean, first, I'm not all then into video calling, so that's a personal bias on my part, but it's also like Amazon is developing this to finally get kids to sit down for video calls with the grandparents. And I don't know about you, but during the pandemic, getting my kids to have a video call with my mom was like trying to herd cats into a wood chipper. So if Amazon is trying to solve this problem by putting a projector with an interactive game into the video call unit, I actually kind of respect that, and I think it'll have a real impact for kids maybe in the... I don't know, one to six or seven year old range. My 11 year old and 15 year old, that will have zero effect unless the projector also plays YouTube. But seriously, being a grandparent and getting to sit down and watch your four year old grandchild play a game, I imagine would actually be pretty priceless. So in this case, I'm all for it. But I also wonder how sophisticated those games get and how old the interest will be held. So overall, it's a fairly niche device, but I can definitely see some tangible benefits here. Also coming this week is Amazon's new Halo View, which is also called the Amazon Halo. This is what the Halo should have been all along, but that's too long a name to fit on the box, so they're just going with Halo View. The Halo is basically a fitness tracker with an AMOLED screen which sells for about $80 whenever it comes out because there's no release date yet. The original Halo, you'll recall, was an exercise tracker that didn't have a screen, so if you wanted to know how you were doing, you had to get out your phone. It had some interesting sensors like a microphone and a sweat detector to try to determine your stress levels. The new band seems to be more of a straight-up fitness band, sans microphone, which is actually kind of a relief. It lasts about a week on a charge, which is about average for a fitness band. As Android Central points out, at $80, this undercuts most other fitness bands out there, except for things like the Mi Band and the Wise Watch, so it's actually a pretty decent deal. The Halo Band comes with a year's free access to Amazon's health subscription service. Oh, there it is. Okay. Okay, yeah, so it seems like Amazon wants to compete with Apple Fitness Plus or Peloton, you know, just without the bike. And I'm not sure that Amazon is who I'd turn to with the idea of getting healthy. You know, if I need a phone case, I'll look at Amazon. Fitness? Not so much. Amazon's home security company Blink, which has pretty much just had cameras up until now, also got a product lineup boost. Front and center is the Blink video doorbell for $50. This bell can be wired or wireless, and if it's wired, two AA batteries will last up to two years on a charge, which is nice. The video camera is a 1080p camera, and the doorbell links up to an app for doorbell notifications. It's stupid cheap, but for my money, if you're looking to keep it cheap, 
I'd probably go with the Wise doorbell myself. For the same price, you get the doorbell and a chime extender. Blink also released a pair of accessories for its outdoor cameras. The first one is a floodlight that brings 700 lumens to your camera, and the second is a solar charger that can keep your camera charged basically indefinitely. Both of those are nice upgrades to a product line that lacked upgrades going from one generation to the next. Personally, I'll probably pass on all of them, but if you're looking to dip into a little DIY home security, these might be worth a look. And finally, the piece de resistance, Amazon unveiled Astro, the robot with a screen and a camera and a periscope camera that can roam around your house and follow you around to be a sort of companion, but also to identify intruders. And yeah, this is getting a little weird. Astro also has a cup holder on it because of course it does. Android Central calls it a mouse droid, referring to the tiny little droids roaming around the Death Star. Anyway, the screen is basically an Amazon Echo Show that can have a cute little pair of eyes on it. Astro is designed to roam around your home and make sure the people in it belong there. If it comes across any unrecognized faces, it will warn the homeowner of a possible intruder, presumably just before getting drop kicked into the fireplace. Astro also has a periscope camera that can extend up about four or five feet in height to get a higher view of the room. Astro also uses Alexa routines to try and fit in around your day. It's all very cute. The robot is also only available via invitation and will cost around $1,000 during the beta period. After that, the price will jump up to $1,500. And personally, this robot would only be of limited use to me for similar reasons as to why robot vacuums are of limited use. I have stairs. Moreover, I have a split-level house, so I have a lot of stairs everywhere. And I really wish that robot makers would tackle the stair problem first before making more robots. I can't be the only person in the world who has stairs. In fact, I'm fairly sure I'm not, although it's been about two years since I've been to anybody else's house. So honestly, who knows at this point? So that wraps up the Amazon Fall event. There was a lot of stuff there, and a lot of it was concept stuff that's available only by invitation. Meanwhile, The Verge reminisces to a time when the beta testers didn't have to pay for the privilege of beta testing. Amazon has released a lot of devices to paying customers in betas, so that's kind of not cool. And I recognize the need for beta testers, and I get that in cases like the Amazon Astro, you're actually getting like a $500 discount, but you're still asking customers to pay $1,000 to beta test something. I guess it's working because Amazon keeps doing it. So more power to them. Of the various devices released, I gotta say I'm most interested in the Echo Show 15. Having a wall-mounted Echo could be pretty interesting, even though... I can't really think of a place in my house where I could mount it, but I can see something like that being quite useful. The drone camera is also an interesting concept, and I'm a little excited to see how that goes as well. I'm fairly convinced that it's one of those concepts that you know kind of sounds cool and maybe even looks cool when it's in a Jira project or something, but in real life, I'm just not sure how useful it'll be. Throughout my career in mobile, or at least the last six years anyway, whenever I've been asked what's the best smartwatch out there, my answer has always been the Apple Watch. It has simply looked like the best option for most people. It has some of the best features in a watch, like fall detection, heart rate monitoring, health data, and more, and just feels like a more complete project than anything on Android Wear or Tizen RIP. But the thing is, 
I've never worn an Apple Watch before. Not once during the six years that the Apple Watch has existed have I actually worn one. So anytime I recommended the watch, and that includes while I hosted the Android Authority podcast, I was basing that opinion off of demos and reviews and conversations I've had with those who have worn the watch. But until last week, I'd never worn one. And that has been rectified. So is my opinion justified? Let's find out. This is my mini review of the Apple Watch SE. Before we get into my favorite part of the watch, we need to talk about a few things. First of all, the screen on the watch, it's a rounded square. The Apple Watch does not have a round face at all, and that might be a problem to some of you. Watches are meant to be round after all, and if you're one of those folks, more power to you. You simply will not like the aesthetics here. Can't do anything about that, personally, I don't mind a square face. I also don't use the always on display because to me, a smartwatch is not supposed to be a watch. It's supposed to be a small screen on my wrist that acts as an extension of my phone, serving notifications, letting me read emails, tracking my health data. So I don't care if the screen is round or square on all the time or not. The watch itself is an all-aluminum build with an Ion X display, whatever the hell that means. The face is curved and meshes seamlessly with the body of the device. On the back is a heart rate sensor that protrudes out the back of the watch, so it doesn't sit flat on your wrist, which is, honestly, it kind of takes a little getting used to. My watch came with a Nike silicon strap, though I quickly picked up a faux leather strap on Amazon that is also nice. Both straps are easily changeable with a quick release button that allows the strap to slide in and out. On the right side of the watch is the digital crown, and that is also a push button and a second button. The button of the digital crown takes you to the app drawer or back to the watch face if you're in an app. The crown spins freely, and I like a little bit more resistance or haptic feedback when I turn it. It spins a little bit too easily for my taste. The watch is powered by a 296 milliamp hour battery that Apple says will last up to 8 hours. My experience has been over 24 hours on a charge, maybe even closer to a day and a half, so that's kind of a big deal. While battery life is definitely a concern for this watch, it's not significantly worse than what I'll get with the Samsung Galaxy Watch 3 that is my other main smartwatch. Yes, you'll need to charge it every day. No, that's not a big deal. So that honestly kind of does it for the hardware. There's not a lot to talk about here. The Apple Watch SE has been out for a year now, and it's currently Apple's mid-range offering with the Series 7 taking on the high end and the Series 3 binging up the rear. So that's it, right? That's the review? No, that is not the review because the hardware is fine. It's not spectacular. It's not amazing. It's just fine. But the real magic here is in the software. And holy crap, folks, buckle in. I've used my fair share of wearables going all the way back to the Moto 360, and I'll spare you the details of every smartwatch I've worn, but suffice it to say, since 2015 or so, I've never gone without a smartwatch on my wrist. That's a whole lot of Android Wear, Tizen, and some other manufacturers like Xiaomi, Fitbit, and even Wise. And the Apple Watch absolutely 100% blows everything else I have ever worn out of the water when it comes to the software. Don't get me wrong, I prefer the look and the feel of the Galaxy Watch 3 and the TicWatch Pro. Those watches feel substantial and they look a little fancy. I like the lightweight simplicity of the Xiaomi Mi Band 5 that I reviewed last year, but the software on the Apple Watch is so far ahead of everything else 
everything else on the market right now. It is simply embarrassing. If I suspected that Samsung and Google were getting together to work on Wear OS 3 was a desperation move, I am positive of it now because anyone with a pulse who wears the watch for more than 20 minutes knows that Google and Samsung don't even deserve to sniff the farts of the Apple Watch software. The software and by extension the interaction between the iPhone and the watch are simply a wonder to behold. So let's, let's talk about this. Over the years, I'd convinced myself that a smartwatch was a good notification tool that allowed you to take phone calls, scan a quick email, track your steps. Who needs apps on a smartwatch, right? Dear listener, I could not have been more wrong. It's not just that the apps on the phone automatically download to your watch. It's not just that there's more apps. It's the interoperability between the watch and the phone that make this incredible. That, plus the thoughtfulness that went into developing the apps in the first place, that really made me fall in love. Just this week, I was driving up to my house and I was trying to pull my phone out of my pocket so I could open my garage door. Oh wait, never mind. I just popped open the MyQ app on the watch and voila, the garage was open. I can arm my home security system from my watch. When someone rings my doorbell, I get a photo from my doorbell showing me who rang it on my watch. I can't stream my camera feed through my watch because that would be silly to be perfectly honest, but there's a lot of thought that went into the apps themselves. And we used to talk about an app gap between Android and iOS, and that no longer exists on phones. But on watches, oh my god, it's terrible. Look, at this point, I don't think I can talk about this anymore without getting boring or repetitive, but there is one more thing that I want to talk about. The connection between the watch and the phone and how well they work together is just so slick. When I ring my phone from my watch, it rings every damn time. I have not owned a single smartwatch in all my years that has ringed my phone every single time I've tried it. When I open an app on the watch, it can control functions on the phone. The most notable example is opening the Pocket Cast app, which, yes, you can play and pause on a Wear OS watch, sure. But even if Pocket Cast isn't open on the phone, I can open the app and start up a podcast from my watch. And I think Android is so damn conservative on background processes that it inhibits this functionality on its phones. Hell, I've had Android phones that won't even ring when you call them consistently. There are times that the Galaxy Watch 3 is connected to the phone, as in, I just got a notification from the phone, but when I try to ring the phone, it says, oh, unable to connect, or just nothing happens. And that simply should not ever be the case. And so far on the Apple Watch, that's not the case. Some of the software isn't there though. Take for example, the much needed ability to unlock your phone with your watch. You can't turn that function on on some units, including mine, because there's a bug preventing that from working. And actually, as I record this, a new fix is out to fix that. So Apple does have some work to do, no argument there. But overall, when it comes to the software experience on a smartwatch, I'm happy to say for all these years, I have not been lying to you. The Apple Watch is simply incredible. And I'm not trying to gush here, but I'm kind of gushing. So where does that leave us? Well, the Apple Watch is not perfect. There are hardware limitations here, most notably in the battery life that is trumped by other smartwatches such as the TicWatch Pro and its transflexive display that can last you for days and days if you need it to. There are round watch faces on a majority of Android Wear smartwatches. But in the area of software, there's the Apple Watch, then there's 50 yards of crap, then there's everyone else. 
Samsung and Google should be embarrassed by how badly the Apple Watch is pantsing them and taking their lunch money. And if you're sitting there listening to this and saying to yourself, I don't care about apps, then yeah, that's fine. That's an opinion that I held for six years. And I have to believe that it's because you've never used an Apple Watch that you've owned. And that's fine. Apps aren't everything. But they have changed my world and how I will view smartwatches from now on. This is the standard by which all others will be judged. And Apple sets a really, really, really high bar. So that's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to not thank Apple for not sending me an Apple Watch SE. And I'd like to thank Amazon for continuing to put stuff out there that borders just a little bit on the crazy. I'd like to thank Cliff Thomas for all of his hard work behind the scenes, but most of all, and as always, I'd like to thank you for listening and for giving me the benefit of the doubt.